Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And you have landed at the table. We discuss issues of God and culture. And today our topic is the ethics that surround and the topic of in vitro fertilization, IVF. Is how I've, I told someone today, if you can't live with initials in our modern world, you're in real trouble. So, uh, And we have three guests today. I'm going to let them introduce themselves and then we'll dive in. Um, uh, Scott Ray, who um, I guess we'll do this at the very, very start. He and I have known each other since we were five years old. So uh, go back. Um, we go back further than we care to remember. Let's just put it that way. And uh, so, Scott, welcome, welcome to the table. We're glad you could be with us. Thank you. And then uh, the other person by Zoom is Jeff Barrows, who uh, I, I didn't give your position. I'm going to let you do that later. Um, I'll go through and go around. And then uh, Christina Crenshaw is here on, on my right. Uh, she's an associate at the center, uh, formerly taught at Baylor University. So, uh, so with that in mind, I'm going to ask the question I normally ask that leads off a podcast, and how did, how did nice people like you get into a gig like this? And Jeff, I think I'll start with you since you're the doc in the room. Well, I guess um, the short answer is I answered an email, but uh, <laughs> the long answer is that I, uh, I serve as a senior vice president for bioethics and public policy at the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. I've been in that role now about two and a half years. Uh, prior to my life in CMDA, uh, I was an OBGYN uh, practicing in a relatively rural area of Ohio, uh, northwest of Columbus. Uh, I did practice infertility, did not practice IVF, or not trained on IVF, but uh, did do a fair amount of infertility in my practice. So I think that probably helped get me to the table here today as well. Well, thanks, Jeff. And Scott, give us your background, how you got yeah, into I've this. I've been on the faculty professor of Christian ethics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, for 34 years. Uh, have a THM from Dallas Seminary uh, and then a PhD in ethics from the University of Southern California and has spent, spent about 15 years as a hospital ethics consultant for a variety of both nonprofit and for-profit uh, healthcare systems here in Southern California. Right. And Christina? Yeah. So my PhD is in education and woefully prepared me for this IVF conversation, but I do have personal experience with the IVF journey, so that is what brings me to the table today. All right. Well, thank you all. First of all, I give you great thanks for uh, giving us of your time and expertise as we do this. I'm going to start with the doc, since he said he was an OBGYN, and that is, so you're there in rural Ohio. Uh, just practicing your your medicine uh, and and trying to apply your you know the oath that you swore as a doctor and uh, and you said you sometimes work with infertility tell us about that and kind of why this leads into the other discussion well infertility unfortunately is is very common uh, and in fact I think it's increasing in incidence uh, when I was practicing, the statistics that I would quote my patients would be that on average between 10 and 12 percent of couples 
would qualify as being infertile. And by the way, uh, I'll give the definition of that. That usually means the uh, couple attempting to become pregnant over a 12-month period of time without success. If the, if the woman, the wife, is over the age of 35, sometimes we'd cut that down to six to nine months so that it wouldn't, we'd shorten it, the time that she'd have to wait. But uh, very common, so I would have patients that would come in and I would begin an infertility workup uh, with them. And if I uh, was successful in, in diagnosing, for instance, an ovulatory problem where they were not releasing an egg on a regular basis, I would begin treatment or, or some of the other uh, types of problems in infertility that I could treat. I would do that. Uh, but then a lot of times there were instances where I could not... Uh, uh, find the problem using the usual uh, infertility tests, and then I would send them down to typically Columbus, uh, where they would see an infertility specialist, not necessarily to jump right into IVF, but certainly IVF was and always is an option that would increase that couple's odds of being able to achieve pregnancy. So uh, it was a relatively common thing that I dealt with uh, when I was in full-time practice. And uh, and and how equipped did you feel like you were to go there as a doctor? I mean, is this something they did discuss in your medical school preparation, or is this something that you you know? Sometimes in ministry, we encounter stuff that we 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 didn't do class on. Um, so um, you know, how, how did how did they help prepare you for what it is you were facing? You know, my training was solely in the science of of infertility. Uh, and in fact, I did my residency in OBGYN in the early 80s. And the first in vitro baby born in the United States was 1981. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was I was being trained right as in vitro was coming into being. And so it was clear it was going to become fairly widespread across the country as it did. But in terms of the ethics on surrounding infertility and especially surrounding IVF, I had absolutely no training until I went into my master's program at Trinity in the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. And, and I have to make an, a confession up front. Uh, my thinking was far too utilitarian and not enough Christian until I went through that program. And it changed a lot of the ways that I that I now think about IVF. Okay, so we go from the doc to the ethics theologian. He shows up in your in 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 your program. I mean, it's not your program, but in, theoretically, it's in your program. And what kinds of questions are you thinking about that go beyond the kind of question that is, well, uh, we're a couple and we we seem to be unable to have a child. Well, first of all, we want to acknowledge that there's, you know, and I'm sure Jeff would agree with this too, there's much more than a medical side involved here. There's a pretty significant spiritual and emotional side to this. And Christina, you can speak to that too, I'm sure. But, you know, the reason I got into this was that basically my wife and I were in the middle of a four to five year period of infertility ourselves. About the same time that I started studying this, and I've, I soon discovered that in this field, you know, what I, what I studied had a way of following me home, and it certainly did in this case. I started studying this about the time that IVF was maybe 10 years old, uh, and that the, you know, the, the stuff of these surrogacy arrangements that often used, uh, often used IVF, that's the stuff of TV miniseries. 
And it was about that time that my wife and I began our own very painful journey. What we discovered quickly is that for people who hadn't been down this road, uh, it was really easy for them to under seriously underestimate the, the, the degree and intensity of pain that was felt by infertile couples. Mm. Uh, you know, we went to our church. Our church did virtually nothing on Mother's Day or Father's Day to commemorate people for whom those are two of the worst days of the year. So there's a there's a pretty significant pastoral and spiritual side that I would want to address sort of first and foremost uh, before going into the ethical issues. Okay, that's great to raise because uh, it's with a lot of areas. There's what you believe and what you think about it, but how you actually relate to people is a pretty important part of the equation. Well, and I think if you know if you to the degree that you have pastors and church leaders listening here, uh, I really I challenge them to think really hard about all of the the couples for whom Mother's Day and Father's Day are just they're just terrible days and for, for a variety of reasons infertility being one of those and so at least to acknowledge that uh, I think has a chance to bring some people in to the ministry of the church that might otherwise stay home on those days I know my wife and I stayed home from church on those days regularly during that time period Interesting. Yeah, and obviously the other side of that equation is the people who go through miscarriage and what that's represented for them as well. So that's that's a that's a good word to open up with, Scott. Um, let me ask you secondly then, um, but uh, as you think about the, you know, when I think about my own training, uh, which predated um, in vitro, but still even afterwards thinking about the kinds of things that I would hear about in pastoral settings and that kind of thing there wasn't very much help coming from the theological side on this that i can that i that i can recall well we at talbot we do have a course on this that almost all of our students are required to take uh and my i, I tell them right at the very beginning my goal for this is for the people in your church to call you instead of me mm-hmm. when they face some of these issues mm-hmm. Uh, and my job is to equip you to deal with this at the level of the local church because you know these folks, you walk through life with them, you are far better equipped relationally to deal with them than anybody coming in from the outside. Okay, so the next cl- level of questions is, that's the pastoral side, the next level of questions is, what are some of the ethical issues that we need to consider? And we're going to loop back and talk about those down the road, but I just want to get them out on the table before I talk to Christina. Well, I think there are a handful of things that you need to wrestle with. One is that one is probably the most basic one, and that is: is there anything unethical or unbiblical about conception taking place outside the womb? And this, I think, this is the objection I think most of our Catholic brothers and sisters raise. Uh, my, for myself, well, we'll get into the, the resolutions in a minute. That's right, right. one. Um, second is. Um, the standard of practice in IVF is to harvest as many eggs as possible, fertilize as many as possible, implant two, maybe three at most, and then freeze and save the rest for later use. And but if you hit the jackpot on the first try, you've got you may have you may have eight, ten embryos, children left over in storage. And so the disposition of those embryos, what to do with those is another significant ethical issue. Uh, a third one has to do with, uh, again, with with IVF being maybe too successful, and you have all may have all the embryos that are implanted actually form successful pregnancies, uh, and then clinics will usually offer the option of some sort of selective termination, 
at that point. Uh, fourth ethical issue has to do with freezing embryos per se, uh, you know, regardless of things like attrition rate and success rate in thawing them out. Is it morally justifiable to freeze a human person just in any case? Because I think most people would say, you know, we wouldn't do that to our two-year-old regardless of the reasons. And if we consider embryos, fetuses, and two-year-olds persons, but on a just a different place of maturity, um, then I think some of the same ethical issues apply to embryos as they would to fetuses and two-year-olds. So they're, they're, they're actually behind all those questions. It strikes me there's a premise that's pretty important, and that is that the conception when conception begins and when the person when 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 is a person a person well i think the for one i think the scripture is pretty clear on this in the first place uh but i think that i think this is something actually that science can tell us uh, i mean i think you have you have a living human being from the point of conception that's a separate entity genetically and biologically from the mother i think we ought to we ought to distinguish between the, the, the fetus being a part of the woman's body and being dependent on the woman's body, those are two different things. The fetus is not a part of the woman's body. It's a genetically distinct entity that is housed there and dependent on the woman's body. But it's different fundamentally than being a kidney or a liver or a piece of tissue. Okay, that's, that's helpful. And that's, that, like I said, I think that's an underlying premise behind all the other questions that you've asked that's actually it pretty is. important. So we'll, so we'll rotate, we'll come back to that, because that's, that's the starting point for all the conversations ethically, it seems to me. Um, so Christina, after that wonderful brief exposition of, of the ethical challenges, we come to the whole personal side of the story, et cetera. So I'll let you, let you fill that in. Talk, let's talk about some of the things that we've already raised, how sure. personal this is and, and yeah. how this works at a, at a human level. Yeah, and and Scott, thank you for sharing a little bit of your journey. I think that that gives it, you know, more of um, credibility and clout that you are studying something that you have personally, you and your wife have, have wrestled with. And, you know, I would say that bioethics is not something that I was particularly interested in my late twenties, but by the nature of struggling with infertility, um, had to, you know, I was thrust into a lot of these conversations. And to summarize my story and journey, um, you know, I would. Well, I would start by saying to anybody who's listening who's going into pastoral ministry and encounters a couple who are struggling with infertility to know that this is not usually anyone's first choice, that people typically find themselves at the doorstep of fertility treatment by way of trying all other methods of um, of conception. So uh, for us, it was a four-year journey, similar to, to Scott's. Um, we ended up... Um, Having to go out of town, Waco, Texas didn't really have a robust clinic for the sort of treatment. And we we did IVF, and um, it was a very rigorous, expensive process. It's a part that's another ethic we could get into that um, this typically costs anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand dollars to do a round of, of infertility treatment. We had prayed about adoption. We went through adoption training, and we realized that our window for fertility was very short. That adoption window is 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 much wider and broader. Um, we did a round of, of IVF and we um, 
harvested five embryos, which I think, given the the ethics of that IRB and that ethics committee at the hospital, was was a respectable number. Part of you know what happens behind the scenes that you don't really have control over is how many they decide are viable, um, and so a lot of prayer went into to that as well. We implanted two, which is standard if you are under thirty, particularly if you're under thirty-five, and we ended up conceiving. But then we miscarried, which was heartbreaking. Mm. So we had three that were frozen. At that time, I was finishing a PhD program, and I had landed a tenure-track job in California. My husband landed a position doing mergers and acquisitions in California, and we knew we were leaving, but we had these three frozen. So I won't say the name of the hospital, but we had to go before the ethics committee, and we begged, can we please implant three, because we don't want to just implant two and come back for one. And, you know, transferring frozen embryos is a whole nother, you know, industry and facet that you have to consider to the IVF process. So they gave us permission to implant three, and only one took, and that was our, our firstborn. And I remember the doctor saying, you know, you have unexplained infertility. We can find nothing wrong with your husband. We can find nothing wrong with you. But based on the four years that you've been trying and the three rounds of IUI and the two rounds of IVF, we give you less than a 1% chance of ever being able to conceive on your own. Hmm. So we again started the adoption process after that. Um, and this is, you know, a different conversation, but I just want to say as a place of like a miracle and praise, we did end up conceiving my second more naturally after mm. that. So I want to give anybody listening not a false sense of hope, but that just because you are infertile, so to speak, doesn't mean that you will always be infertile. So Interesting. So I'm going to go back to the doc, doctor, um, Dr. Jeff. Um, um, uh, what what in what you heard is uh, sounds like what you heard on the one hand, and secondly, how prepared are most doctors for what you are hearing? Well, I, I assume you're going to say want me to answer in terms of OBGYNs that are dealing with um, infertility patients. Well, let me let me and start let me start elsewhere first because OBGYN probably has more likelihood of coming across this and being prepared for it than other doctors. So let's say you're in your normal internist or general practitioner doctor who you might see for a physical or something like that. How how prepared do you think they are for something like this? They're they're not going to be very prepared to talk in depth about not only the the science and the workup, they they would just as soon refer to someone in their network in terms of the workup. But even to answer the the ethical questions that Scott raised, uh, very unlikely that they'll be able to do that and have really thought much about it, frankly. Um, and and so even family physicians, uh, I think most most that are not doing it directly have probably not thought in detail and depth about what are the ethics. Uh, and, and many of them, frankly, uh, will probably have differing views on when life begins and differing views of what I call the sanctity of the body, uh, which is really what Scott got to in the fact that God designed our bodies where fertilization would occur inside the woman. Um, and the other ethical issue that, that Scott didn't raise that I think uh, also needs to be brought up, and that is the use of gametes uh, outside of the marriage. 
Uh, do you use uh, a donor sperm? Uh, do you use, in surrogacy, you might use donor eggs. I is that ethical? And uh, I would say that's far beyond the average uh not only the average physician that, that doesn't deal with uh, infertility, but it, it was not something I thought about uh, as an OBGYN, and as I said, until I got into the bioethics degree at Trinity. Yeah, that was the that was embedded in the surrogacy that he that he raised as he went through the questions, and uh, that actually was something I saved in my cash to come back to. So I'm glad you Darryl, raised let me, it. Let me yeah, comment on one, on one yeah. thing that Jeff said. Yeah. Um, I think you know raising the issue of egg and sperm donors. I think is right. That's another significant ethical issue that doesn't affect every couple, but it does affect quite a few. Uh, especially if the woman is a, is a bit older, uh, she will often get really strong suggestions to have an egg donor uh, because, I, I, for example, I consulted with a couple two weeks ago where the woman's forty six, and they're on their second round of IVF and the physician basically wouldn't wouldn't do IVF unless they were willing to have an egg donor uh, be a part of it. But it's, I think it's true that physicians are not, uh, they're just not trained in some of the ethical issues with this. And I think that it's interesting, Jeff, you had mentioned you sort of defaulted to utilitarian position on a lot of these things in your practice. And the couples do that too, because mo most of the couples that I've talked to, a lot of times they're just not open to any kind of ethical discussion that would put constraints on their likelihood of having a baby. And they, I mean, their goal is to get out of this thing with a healthy baby and, you know, they'll, they'll deal with the ethics later or not at all. Um, and they're willing, Christina, you had mentioned the financial stuff. They're willing to take out second and third mortgages on their homes and to do, to do all sorts of, you know, in my view, financially irresponsible things simply to achieve the goal of getting a baby. So so Jeff I'm back to you so we we've we've put we've put uh, several do levels of doctor under the bus. What about the what about the gynecologist? The OBGYN. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that I was fairly representative uh, even as a, a devoted Christian, I mentioned earlier before we got on that I was I was preaching at churches when I wasn't on call on the weekend. I was preaching, and and so I was studying a lot of scripture. But it was you know the whole concept of IVF I had in my mind kind of separated out, and I hadn't asked the difficult questions, and and really the coming down to um, is this. The right thing to do. I mean, that's the essence of ethics, right? Is is science says this is possible? Ethics tries to answer yes, it's possible, but should you do it? And and I hadn't really answered that, even as a, I would say a a very committed Christian OBGYN until I got into my bioethics degree and was forced to really start thinking about it. And by the way, it's interesting because in my class at, at Trinity, we had an IVF specialist who came in and he was doing IVF without thinking about it as well. And through the course of his, his studies in our classes, he came to realize I have been doing something that is unbiblical. And, and I have to hand it to him. He stopped practicing IVF 
in the middle of of taking this degree. So I think I don't think it's common for Christian, even committed Christian physicians, to think in depth on this issue until they're forced to ask these questions. Interesting. So, Christina, I'm going to come to you next and and, and ask it this way, and that is. Um, how much did you give thought to these ethical questions that we're beginning to raise and that are on the table for us to be be thinking about? You know, I would say that I give a, a great deal of thought given what I had resources to think about because we, we did this process 10 years ago, and this was in the throes of Octomom. You know, your listeners can mm-hmm. Google if they're not familiar with her, but I think she's pretty mainstream. People know that reference. Um, there was a TV show, John and Kate Plus Eight, and they had their, I think, six tuplets through IVF. So in that sense, um, and and I did my research. I'm a pretty research-oriented person. I know that. That's by, true. <laughs> by nature. So I was actually seeking medical journals, which is probably not the typical response, but because I was a doctoral student and I had access to medical journals, I started researching. You know, the first successful IVF baby was done in England, and then as I think it was Scott who um, relayed with America two years after that. And so I knew that I was about the same age as the only successful IVF mm-hmm. babies. And so I gave it a great deal of thought. I think the way I'm wired, I remember rereading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and mm-hmm. really wrestling with the Lord, like when does life begin and what what is an interference in creation? But I think what was helpful for us, and the older we've gotten, my husband and I, and the more we've matured spiritually, the more we've, you know, set aside or kind of surrounded the contextual conversation with, with um, some ethics. But the big rocks for us were what do we believe about conception? What do we believe about using our own bodies versus a surrogate that was you know, not a road that we had to cross? And um, what do we believe about human flourishing? And so we, we came to a conclusion that if um, we believed in implanting all of the embryos that belong to his sperm and my egg, that we were enhancing our fertility journey more than we were um, interfering with the Lord's plan or will. Um, and so I think that every situation has more nuance or you know different situations would have more nuance than that. We didn't have to use any donor. Um, you know, eggs or sperm, we didn't use a surrogate. I think those raise, as we've discussed, an entirely different set of ethics when we're, when we're bringing in a third party to the marriage. But um, I, would, I would highly suggest to anybody in the throes of infertility or anybody who is pastoring a couple or discipling, you know, a couple um, through medical infertility to to ask the couple to come up with the big rocks you know look at scripture look at you know the whole of, of what we believe about life and to not compromise on those convictions that you're you're feeling the lord is speaking to you that was helpful for us god is a genius storyteller and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture in christianity today's new show Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. 
Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, well, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Scott, um, so now I'm going to you. And how many people did you meet who were couples who gave as much thought to that as Christina <laughs> and, and her husband apparently uh, apparently gave to this? Is that exceptional it's or pre- unusual? It's pretty rare. Okay. Most of them don't give serious thought to it until until after the fact. And by that time, the, the proverbial horse is out of the barn. Um and it's it's in some cases it's too late to uh, to make the kinds of decisions that they should have made beforehand. So that that's actually raising a good pastoral point. So let's pause there for a second. What are the kinds of what what can be the fallout? Let me say it that way. What can be the fallout of the of the pursuit of this that someone may or may not have considered before they stepped into it? I'll, I'll give you an example that may. Illustrate this pretty well. We have very close friends who uh, they tried and tried unsuccessfully, had IVF done, and conceived with triplets. Um, and they figured at that point their childbearing days were over. Uh, and especially because she developed lupus after that, which her physicians told her then further pregnancies were a pretty bad idea. But they had five embryos left in storage. And you know, they then they so they came to me and just said, you know, what do we do with these? Because they didn't they hadn't thought about that beforehand. I said, well, you have you have a handful of options, most of which are not good ones. Ones that you can dis- discard them, which is the moral equivalent of aborting fetuses. You can allow them to die naturally, which is unethical to do if it's possible to save them. Uh, you can donate them to another infertile couple which I think is morally acceptable, but as, as my friend put it, he said, I don't like the idea of my progeny running around the area without my knowledge. Uh, and so the, really the only option that they had available was to keep them in storage indefinitely. And I think that's what, the, that's what they chose to do, uh, which all that does is kick the can down the road and force them to make a decision later. The only one of those options I think is acceptable is to put them up for adoption to another infertile couple. Hmm. Uh, and there are, you know, in the last 10, 15 years, embryo adoption has become a thing uh, that's actually a, a viable option. And, and for couples who are considering a sperm or egg donor, uh, I, and I think, Christine, you're right about your hesitation to bring a third party into the matrix of marriage for procreation purposes. I always suggest that they adopt embryos instead. Yeah, because uh, they get a lot of what they what they value out of natural procreation, which is the experience of being pregnant, giving birth, the bonding with the mother. No, there's no break in the relationship at birth when their hand, child's handed off to someone else. So it has, and that's that's not a knock on traditional adoption, but it does have some differences that I think are in the ben- to the benefit of both the the parents and the child. So for clarity, um, when you adopt an embryo, what does that actually mean? Well, you go through, in fact, I would encourage your listeners, if you Google the Snowflake program, that is, Christy, you're nodding your head, you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. That's the largest embryo adoption agency in the world. They facilitated more than four or 500 of these in the last 20 years. And essentially, you, you take possession 
of embryos that another couple had left over and had left frozen. And you implant to, you know, however many is safe to do, um, or however many children you want to have, although that's not always in your control. Um, and you implant them, and then you you formally adopt the children and go through all the same legal arrangements that you would in a traditional adoption. Hmm. It's just uh, it's early. It's just earlier in the process, basically. Uh, much, yeah. <laughs> and a lot less expensive, I would add, oh, to than going through the entire IVF process. But Scott, you could probably talk to this more than I could. Aren't there a significant amount of frozen embryos available for adoption? Because that is part of the ethical dilemma as well. Yeah, it's a yes, it is. You're, it's a good. It's a good point. The. Uh, the demand far ex- actually actually the, the demand exceeds the available supply and the reason for that is because most couples don't designate their embryos for donation well, in fact most couples who have embryos left over in IVF have this profound ambivalence about what to do with them because they know that, that you know that the embryos especially if they've had children successfully they know that there's a big continuity between the embryos in the lab and those bouncing children that they're holding in their arms. But they also say, well, this is just, you know, this is cells that you have to look under a microscope to see. And there's something counterintuitive about calling embryos persons, even though I think they still, they are. Um, So most couples choose to simply keep them in storage indefinitely, which just shifts the ethical decision from the couple to the clinic about what to do with all these. They're probably, last count, they're probably close to a million embryo, frozen embryos in infertility clinics around the country. I think that's right, Scott. There are about a million, uh, the last I read, and, and the estimates are that about 15% of those are really now getting into the category of being unclaimed. A lot of the infertility, infertility clinics uh, I've had these customers stop paying for the annual fee for the freezing, right. and the clinics are struggling what to do with these. And so, uh, and that's really where I'm. I'm glad to see that these some of these clinics are setting themselves up as donation clinics. So they'll take and do all the legal work to accept the embryo as a donation that then later can be put into an infertile couple. I don't know who answers this question. It's a technical question, and that is, um, and I, I'm going to use a, probably a crass illustration to ask it. And that is, is there an expiration date on this? I mean, uh, does is there, um, you know, <laughs> good until you know six twenty eight or something like that? I have heard about twenty years, okay. but I will let somebody with a medical degree answer that. I, I don't think anybody probably. knows. Nobody knows. There are there are embryos that have been frozen for 20 and 30 years, and there have been live babies that have come out of those frozen embryos. So uh, I don't think we have an answer to that. The part of it does – I was just going to say part of it depends – the freezing technique has changed as well over the last decade especially. For and the initial – 20 to 30 years, they were using a a slow freezing technique that had a mortality of about 20 to 30 percent. But in the last 10 years, they have um, perfected in a a better way 
Uh, I'm still opposed to it. I want to make that clear. But uh, they, they use a fast freezing technique uh, that's also associated with a process called vitrification that dries out the embryo. And so the mortality is actually less than 5%. And uh, so that's that process has only been in use, as I said, for the last five to 10 years. And who knows uh, how long those embryos uh, will remain viable in that frozen state. Scott, I think I heard the longest. Go ahead. The longest time span that I'm aware of for a successful live birth from a frozen embryo is 13 years. Hmm. So I think, you know. Christina, you meant 20 years. That's that's probably the upper limit, I would say. Okay, so this is a problem that – this is this is the other side of the conversation in some ways, right? You've got all these embryos that are frozen, unclaimed, sitting around. And and they and if they've gone 20 years, I'm, I dare say they're likely to be sitting around. I mean, the, the idea that someone's going to claim them 20 years afterwards yeah. is not great. So um, so that's another dimension of the question. I, I haven't been keeping count of how many questions this raises, but <laughs> I, I'm, I think I'm on my second hand, if I can say it that way. And uh, um, so there are a lot of questions that are associated with this. We've got about 10 minutes left, so um, and our time is flying. So let's dive into the ethical parts of this. I've almost heard in the midst of the exchange that we're having that that people tend not to think about the ethical dimensions of what's going on here. Um, I'll just ask that as a simple question to start off with, and then we'll go from there. So fair? fair? Most people don't think about the ethical dimensions of what's going on here? I think, I think that's, that's true. Fair. Okay. So, and, I think, and I think most of their physicians have not thought seriously about it either. Okay, that's fair. So 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 let's assume that now you gave a list at the start, Scott, and I'm I'm going to put a little bit of onus on you, but then I, you know I I do this on a regular basis because of our friendship. So, um uh so um <laughs> I see that I see that that little gleam in his eye. Yep, here it comes again. Anyway, um I owe you. You're right. Okay, we'll take care of that conversation first. And then uh so let's go through the list. A question Questions that you raised, and, and give us some help in how to think about each one of these in a kind of pricey kind of way. Okay. First one was: Is there anything intrinsically unethical about conception taking place outside the body? I don't believe there is. Uh, I, I think IVF is. I view infertility as a result of the general entrance of sin into the world. It's not the way God intended, and therefore, it's an appropriate area for medicine to be involved in. And even though IVF doesn't really treat anything, it's an end run around a problem, uh, there's lots of medicine that's, that's an end run around problems too. Th- things like dialysis, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't treat anything, it just is an end run around kidney disease. So I don't think there's anything immoral about that. Um, as long as you follow certain guidelines, which are no throwing away embryos. In fact, I would I would I often encourage couples to limit the number of embryos that they create. And there are clinics that do this with things like uh, what they call minimal stimulation, IVF, which limits the number of eggs that the woman produces. I'm also aware of clinics that will do IVF one egg at a time, uh, which which guarantees you won't have leftover embryos. It may also guarantee that you don't have any pregnancies either. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a that's a risk too. But I think you I think it's it's on the couple to adhere to the principle that every embryo you create in the lab deserves an opportunity to be implanted. So is there a way to do that in such a way that you say, I'm gonna have I'm gonna preserve five embryos and if we conceive after the first two, the other three are available are available for adoption. Is that how you do that? That's the well. You would have. That's one way. Okay. The other way is just to limit the number of eggs that you would have harvested from the woman, so that you, you know, in your best estimate, you're not going to have any left over. But I that's think that's a bit. That's a bit more of a crapshoot. Um, I think, Scott, what you're saying is that a couple should go in not planning on doing embryo adoption, but implanting all of the eggs that are created. That's that's the better option. Okay. Uh, Yes. Okay. So this is so the other would be a fall would be a fallback option to prevent embryos from being left over. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's question one. Let's keep going. Uh, So the second one had to do with uh, you know selective termination of pregnancies. That can be avoided just by the decision that you make. You just don't. Im- you never implant more embryos than a woman can safely carry, uh, and so that one is easy to avoid. Uh, third one has to do, I think, with freezing embryos. I, Jeff, I'm encouraged to hear the new new technology is, is has significantly decreased the mortality rate on those. I'm still. I'm not thrilled about freezing embryos per se. Even if the mortality rate is real low, um, I suppose one way to think about that is that the reason—and I'll, I'll defer to your judgment on this. If correct me if I'm wrong on this, but the reason that embryos don't thaw out successfully usually has—I've heard this from from our own OB—usually is because there's some sort of genetic abnormality in the embryo. That would likely cause it, highly likely cause it to miscarry once it's implanted. I, I think it raises the the odds that there is a genetic slash chromosomal problem. I agree, but not a sure, but not a sure thing. Correct. So that that one, I'm I'm still kind of Daryl. Just to be honest, I'm kind of ambivalent about that one. Um, you know, the standard of practice is that you know every embryo that. Uh, you know, every egg gets fertilized, every embryo gets frozen, um, and you know whether they're viable or not uh, is, the, is often a physician's judgment. I'm not quite sure what that's based on, but I don't, I don't think that has anything to do with the, the obligation to implant every embryo that's created in the lab. The other ethical issue has to do with the use of third-party donors, and I think the scripture tilts very skeptically against that. Uh, because bringing third parties into the matrix of marriage for procreation purposes, I think is a big problem, uh, biblically and theologically. I call it the Abraham solution. Go ahead. Well, because, <laughs> yeah, the only – the Abraham solution was kind of the old-fashioned way. Exactly right. Uh, which some of the early cases of surrogacy were done the old-fashioned way, too. Right, right. Uh, but I think that that's a problem. Uh, that I would I would encourage couples not to consider that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, 
So when it's Does that cover them all, I think. Oh, I think that covered the ones we ran. Of course, the the other premise that we raised at the beginning that we probably do need to come back to is the premise that's underneath all this, which is that when you have when you have an established embryo, and I want to tackle this scientifically and theologically because I think this is a very important question for a whole lot of reasons, even beyond in vitro fertilization, and that is that. Um, all the potentiality for life exists from the moment that um, you get an embryo. Um, most people right. debate that, but that that's true both scientifically as well as being a theological view. Now, am I right about that? I'm going to ask Jeff first. Is that is that the right way to see the science? Exactly. In, in fact, if you ask embryologists, regardless of their faith, lack thereof, or whatever, about 98% of embryologists, people who study the embryo as their life mission, will say life begins at fertilization. And that's because all the potentiality for life is already residing in the embryo. Isn't that the basis for that judgment, or is that is that a way? I mean, that may be a poor way to state it, but is that? I, I would I would say it's partly that, but more that, that that this is a unique, genetically unique individual. Okay. The genetic makeup of that embryo is different than any other individual in the universe and and so that's a unique individual the only caveat to this is that it's possible for an embryo to divide you get identical 20 that throws a mess into all of that but but aside from that uh, that embryo is a unique individual genetically and has the capacity to grow and develop into um, now, I don't want to say into a human being but a as a human being from that point forward and go ahead put it as if the, the, the embryo matures yeah. into a fetus which matures into a newborn which matures into a two-year-old and so on but everything uh, the point that i'm making is you're, everything you're right that, that you needed to get to what everyone sees as life is already there in in the yes. sense of of the material necessary to produce life i put yes. it like this that the, from from the the moment conception is complete the embryo has all the capacities it needs to mature into a full-grown adult. Yeah. Okay. So that's actually important. I mean, that's just uh, to me that's the fundamental conversation in all this is 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 you ask the question: Life doesn't begin when it when it looks like life as we know it now. Life begins much earlier than that, if I can say it say it that way. Um, yeah, and I think to Jeff's point, most embryologists don't disagree on that. No, they don't. It would undermine their entire field of medicine if, if they did. I think where the ethical dilemma is usually found is the wrestling on how then do we treat these embryos as potential human life, as, as for human flourishing. Yeah. So. I know when I came across this, I was I'm, I'm on the board at Wheaton, and we um, we were in the midst of deciding what as a school we would cover as board of trustees. What we would cover in terms of medical care and medical treatment, we ended up f uh, being uh, uh, I don't know remember the technical legal term. But we ended up being a a co a supporter of another suit that was being made that was asking the same question from another school. And in the midst of doing the research for that as board members, we came across this this embryological definition of life. 
and uh, and as a way of thinking about uh, 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 morning after pills and that kind of thing, and uh, and I found myself going, well, this is something I hadn't hadn't thought about before, you know, not really, not from a scientific point of view for sure. And so, um, I mean, I knew theologically the idea that conception, you know, starts at birth, but the science behind it I had no idea about. And so, um, and, it, and it really does, I, I think it makes a difference in thinking about the question. So the distinction you made earlier on, Scott, between, what was it, she, it's not a Part of a body. What's the? I don't remember exactly. Not part of the woman's body, body, but it's dependent on the woman's it's body. Yeah, that distinction is really an important distinction to be, to be thinking about. Um, you know, and 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 then and then what? Well, that seems artificial. But then I remind people, uh, we have children who are born on the other side of birth, who are very dependent on their parents for their survival. Okay. That's okay. And uh, we don't blink about that. So. I, I think that's an important. That's the point of the distinction, right? Because after birth, the child is only just minusculely less dependent on the mother than before. Right. Exactly. It's just in a different location. Right. So I, I think all of this is important as we as we think about it. Uh, believe it or not, uh, our time is uh, gone. Uh, but uh, so I want to I want to thank you all for taking the time to discuss it. I think we've covered this um, as an initial foray into the space uh, reasonably well. Certainly it's raised questions, some of which I hadn't even thought about before, so this has been informative to me, so I appreciate that very much. I'm assuming be informative to the audience. And I just want to thank each of you for taking the time for being uh, a part of this today. Jeff, thank you very much for, for giving us a doctor's perspective. My pleasure. And, and Scott, for the ethicist slash theologian slash been there, done that perspective. Something like that. And Christina, for the same, been there, done that perspective, and in a thoughtful way, which is a really appreciative. It, it, uh, one of the things I think Christina's remark shows is it's possible to be thoughtful about this as you go through it, which I think is an important point to be, uh, to be making. So thank you all very much, and thank you for being a part of the uh, the table. We hope you'll join us again soon. If you're interested in other podcasts that we do, you can see them at voice.dts.edu slash table podcast, uh, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.